welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome back to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. So today our special guest is Dr. Stacy Davis. She is, uh, well, why don't, why don't I let you <laughs> do the bio since you haven't pulled it up. I was going to talk about her. Um, but we get to talk about all sorts of things related to performance expressivity mm-hmm. and fluency and skills and it's a great conversation there's a lot of good sound bites and uh before we get into the conversation let's uh learn more about her so stacy davis is acting director of the school of music and professor of music theory at the university of texas at san antonio utsa to those of us who live here she is a 2019 recipient of the university of texas system regents outstanding teaching award Her research is centered around making connections between the analysis of musical structure, empirical research, music cognition and perception, studies of expressive performance, and music theory pedagogy. Lots of things there. Amongst her publications are articles in the Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy, Music Perception, Psychology of Music, Music Theory Online, and the Rutledge Companion to Music Theory Pedagogy. And I don't know about everybody else, but I'm at that point in the semester where I just need like someone to make me excited about all of this <laughs> because the grading is pile is taller than me. And that's how I felt about this conversation. She just made me excited to get back in the classroom tomorrow and be with my students. So it's a great talk. And sometimes the performance is what helps them with the analysis. If we say, well, this performer slowed down right here. Oh, well, maybe it's because there's an end of a phrase that they hadn't previously been able to notice, but that just constant interplay between the analysis and performance, that the, the people creating the music can be equally informative as the piece of music itself. All right, so we are so happy to have Dr. Stacy Davis with us to talk with us about all things pedagogy um, related to performance, you know, answering the why, you know, why (laughs) our students are learning music theory. That's an important question to always return back to. And so we're excited to chat with you about all the things. But before we get into that, we always like to ask our guests a little bit about how you got into music theory. Um, If it's anything to do with me, it's a lack of marketable skills. Uh, but maybe not, but maybe not. But what led you uh, to the path of a music theorist? Great. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, as I was thinking about this, um, thought back, I began taking piano lessons at uh, age five, and then I started violin in fourth grade, and I continued studying both all the way through high school. I experienced a little bit of music theory through the typical ways in piano lessons, but not much. And I certainly didn't know that it was a thing you could do as a career. Um, knew I wanted to major in music in college and uh, considered math for a little while, but was leaning towards music. Struggled to pick which instrument was going to be my primary one because I really loved both piano and violin a lot. Ended up choosing violin because I really enjoyed that combination of solo, chamber, and large ensemble playing. My initial dream was be a violinist in a professional orchestra, that lofty goal that maybe many of us 
have had. Um, so my undergraduate performance degree was going well, and I was blessed to study with just an amazing violin teacher, not only for her pedagogy and expertise, but she was just particularly good at individualizing every single thing about our lessons, from technique and expressivity to the way she mentored each of us. So I just have this distinct memory of a conversation with her in my junior year, where we started thinking about what comes next and the realities of the professional orchestra world. And did I want to do music ed? And I couldn't really see myself as a conductor. So that middle school, high school orchestra job wasn't quite the right fit. I remember her asking me, but I seems like you love your music theory classes. I see you helping other people in our studio with their theory homework. Have you thought about that? And so she was just great at directing me towards possible mentors who could help me find graduate programs and kind of leaning towards that in terms of tapping into a, an interest in teaching. Little did I know that by choosing Northwestern for graduate school that I would end up at a place that incorporated music perception and cognition, which was pretty new at the time. Um, certainly didn't even know the field existed. So it was kind of a happy coincidence that I ended up with exposure to things that really became super interesting and kind of drove my research and activity since then. Yeah, that's great. And that really kind of connects with kind of the first thing we want to talk with you about, you know, your research in studying performers and um, understanding how they interpret and look at music and then how that might help, um, you know, us understand how to analyze music and kind of connecting with our students. Like <laughs> we like to say that theory is important. It's going to help you as a performer. And then they ask, well, how? And you're like, just believe me, <laughs> just believe me, right? Uh, but yeah. you've actually done work where, you know, you're trying to answer that question, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and first, I kind of begin by thinking, what do we mean when we say analysis? And we talk about this connection between analysis and performance. And what do our students assume we mean when we talk about analysis? I bet we all have had experiences where the students think we mean the stuff they do on their theory homework assignments. <laughs> and they can't imagine that they would pull out their score later in their career and label every chord with Roman numerals or compose a four-part chorale-style progression following certain voice-leading principles. So if that's what they think we mean, then it makes perfect sense that they don't think it connects with whatever music career they're going to pursue. So I just try to engage with students and have them buy into the idea that analysis is just discovering what is interesting and conventional and unexpected and distinctive and compelling in a piece. And there's lots of ways of doing that. And we need some skills and vocabularies in order to be able to do that. And maybe sometimes our theory classes stop there at the skills and vocabularies. And so we just need to engage them in activities and assignments that help them see that identifying types of seventh chords isn't the end goal, but that maybe if I can do that, it can help me answer some other questions. Uh, so that's kind of my starting point always is what do we mean by analysis? Um, maybe one quick silly example would be those early level one days of teaching key signatures where we have to explain principles and then maybe students move through first using tricks to figure them out, or maybe knowing major keys better than minor keys. And then eventually we hope they automatically know all of them. But sometimes I'll ask my students, why do you need to know your key signatures? What's the point of figuring out what key a piece is in? And as you can imagine, their first answer is typically, well, it tells me what notes to play. Mm. 
And so we talk about, well, sure, if there are two flats out there, it tells you to play B flat and E flat. But that doesn't mean you need to name the key. You can play the right notes without knowing that it's in G minor. And so why would we need to know what key we're in? And so we typically have a fun discussion about, well, it tells me which pitch is the most stable or which ones have tension or which ones I want to emphasize or what direction the music might go. Or in an ensemble, who's got a certain part of the scale that has certain tendencies. So kind of a simple example, but I think we can do similar things in all sorts of ways. Yeah, even tuning is affected by knowing what key you're in. I mean, you you can't play in tune if you don't really know what key you're in unless you just inherently can hear that without the knowledge. Exactly. That would be hard. So, yeah. 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 So my interest in studying expressive performance really grew out of that question of what analysis really is. And then these concrete examples uh, we were thinking of, you know, it helps me by studying experts and how they beautifully and expressively perform pieces, we get that sense of their expressive consistency, meaning they understand something about this piece and they're gonna deliver it pretty consistently every time because that's what the music gives them. But also this expressive creativity where they articulate different things and emphasize different things in various ways in each moment of live performance. Um, And maybe these performers don't identify what they're doing as analysis because it's just built in to the way they think about the music and figure out a piece and decide how to perform it. But that's the point. I think that is analysis. Mm -hmm. And so if this can help reveal what experts do in order to offer those as concrete examples to our students, then maybe they can also embrace the idea that all of that is analysis. Um, So maybe one quick example, uh, kind of the pinnacle of my professional career to this point was an opportunity to work with Baroque violinist Rachel Podger, um, who's one of the finest Baroque violinists of our time, and her playing is simply stunning. And now having interacted with her, she's also the loveliest and most generous of people. But after a series of events that still seem unbelievable, even though this happened seven years ago, um, she was able to visit UTSA for a one-week residency where she performed recitals, gave master classes, taught about Baroque performance practice and improvisation. She agreed to solo with our student chamber orchestra. Mm. It was just a remarkable and inspiring work week. But maybe most shocking was that she agreed to participate in my research on expressive performance. She didn't know who I was. She wasn't familiar with my work. She doesn't do research. So for her to agree with this was, (laughs) again, still unbelievable. So to give just one quick example of our work together, uh, one afternoon, I observed Rachel performing and talking about different excerpts of Bach's unaccompanied violin pieces, which of course are kind of the bread and butter of what she does as a Baroque violinist and also a focus of my research. So I didn't give her prior notice on which movements I was going to ask her to play or what she was going to do with them. So everything that followed was just spontaneous in the moment, while also reflective of her deep knowledge of the pieces. And so uh, I video recorded our interactions to later study her performances and her observations, as well as to share them with students. And one of my favorites was her discussion of the final 30 measures of a movement from Bach's B minor violin partita. In the space of four minutes, 30 measures, she gave unbelievably detailed insights about everything from meter, phrasing, cadences, harmony, sequences, implied polyphony, 
shifting bar lines, modulations, <laughs> interruptions. It was amazing the level of detail that she highlighted about the piece and her ability to explain. And because of this, I chose to use this rubato or change articulation mm. or add vibrato or manipulate timbre. And it really made me think about all week as she was working with our students, she would constantly ask them, what is your musical reason for doing that? Mm. And then she would help them discover what it is and then decide how to use expressive nuances to help achieve their effect. And so even that four minute mm. experience with that Bach piece was this perfect example that she had a musical reason for everything, the deep knowledge of the music, and then the ability to share it in any moment and execute whatever her performance intentions are. Mm. There's kind of a cool example, I hope. Totally, totally. No, I was gonna tag on that. I always try to get my students away from like this defaulting to just putting Roman numerals and everything. I'm like, music theory is not chord labeling, guys. It's not <laughs> what it is. Like that's one component. That's one aspect of like one thing that we could possibly do as a methodology. You know, but then inevitably they want to put Roman numerals on stuff. Even in post-tonal music, I had this post-tonal piece up the other day and I asked them about the form. And I said, well, I guess it doesn't have a PAC after the first eight bars or something, you know. And it was almost like they were dumbfounded by the fact that they couldn't just map out four major phrases and have these cadences. And I'm like, well, there are other things. Y'all are just not looking at them. You know what I mean? And it's like you have to prompt them to really go to that next level as, as, as you're doing. And man, when you get to the top level of solo players, it's almost like they, it's a given that they have this in-depth knowledge yeah. of the it, literature. It reminds me of back in undergrad, we had a, um, a pianist from the Moscow Conservatory come to our tiny little liberal arts college um, and do like, like, uh, like a three or four day kind of concerts and residency thing and we were so excited we reserved the nicest practice room for him and everything and we just had just one hallway this of a practice room so we were really excited we we're like we're gonna be hearing this like moscow conservative professor practicing all week and things like that it's gonna be amazing and so he gets there and he spends all almost his entire time in the practice rooms just sitting at the piano looking at the music, playing something here or there. I mean, we were thinking he was going to be ripping up and down the keyboard, right? Scales, arpeggios, and playing his music. But it was just this like mental participation and activity of what was going on. He could hear and you know, know what the sound was going to be. And it had nothing to do with his fingers, you know? And so that makes me think of your story as well, where these like really top-notch performers it's this mental thing right it's this and this deep knowledge of the music and that they are analyzing it you know in in whatever kind of it may not be in a theoretical way like we would analyze it but they're analyzing the music right and that's where that high level of performance comes from it's not just like oh they can play scales really fast or you know things like that but it's that mental aspect that's really cool and sometimes i think we hear these great performers and it's just amazing and we assume that all of that stuff didn't happen. We just hear this final <laughs> product <laughs> instead of knowing the process that they went through and the deep knowledge and experience and familiarity that led to that performance mm -hmm. that is so compelling and interesting yeah. to us. 
So true. I bet your students felt like a level of inspiration because sometimes you feel like when you see somebody that's at such a high level, you feel like, how could I ever be? Like in my case, I have this picture of me and Wenton Marsalis in my office and I remember in middle school thinking, how could I ever be Wenton Marsalis? And of course I cannot, but... <laughs> Don't sell yourself short, Ben. Come it on. was inspiring <laughs> to see kind of the process of some of these uh, really gifted musicians to kind of take away some of that mystique and say well this is kind of my thought process that i went through in these in these 30 bars like like you said i think that's really cool it's kind of the buy-in that if a performer does it not just their theory teacher then it's just an automatic connection when they can see that person doing exactly what we're asking them to do totally i was gonna say like Paul, in your story, I think what is interesting is that you were excited to watch this person practice. Mm -hmm. I think there's often kind of a mysticism around that the part of our of any musician's work that is preparation, which is actually 90% of the climb up the mountain, right? The performance is just this last couple minutes that you do, but everything that comes before it takes so much time. And when I remember having that feeling of it being sort of mystical, like how do I do it the right way? How am I practicing so that I'm going to actually be better? How, you know, all of those things. And it reminds me of this story that my piano colleague, who you might be able to hear in the background right now, um, <laughs> my piano colleague was an undergraduate student and she was waiting outside for her lesson. And she heard, um, she didn't know who, playing a piece at an incredibly slow pace. Um, the person was playing accurately and playing with a lot of expression, but just at a tempo that was like nowhere near a performance tempo. And when her teacher came out to get her, she expected a student, you know, to come out, but it was just her teacher practicing. Mm -hmm. And she kind of was surprised that no other student was there and said, oh, I, I thought maybe someone was here, you know? Her teacher said, no, why? She said, well, just, it was so slow. And her teacher said, I never learn a piece so fast that I can't do it well. You have to learn it slow. That's how you practice. And she talked about how that, that gave her this deep internal sense of understanding that it's okay to not play it perfectly the first time. And that you are building those things kind of piece by piece across a period of time. So um, that deep knowledge of music comes from that. It comes from, you know, those slow moments of just spending time with music, whether you're doing it by just looking at it and studying it and maybe putting Roman numerals on it if they're helpful, or, you know, whether you're playing it at such a slow rate that your brain can actually get your hands to do two different things at the same time, which is always my problem with the piano. But, you know. <laughs> I think that's really incredible. And it makes me think about how important it is that we are creative in front of our students, that they see us not just as people who put Roman numerals on things or tell them how to, but as people who are also musicians and, you know, still creatively pursuing that part of our lives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, in your research, Stacey, did you, of performers, did you find any performers that weren't as aware or, or thought about, I, I mean, 
or, or I, I'm not I'm not looking for you to like name names or anybody, but like you know, you, that's a wonderful example of that vinylist who just has this deep like analytical understanding of what's going on. But did you find performers that were still effective and uh, performers that maybe didn't have weren't thinking the things that you thought they were thinking? Maybe. Yeah, that's a great question. It's interesting. The challenge of studying performance is that we rarely have opportunities to work with the performers. And so our data, so to speak, is the recording. You know, you can grab any commercial recording you want and analyze it and study it in lots of ways. But you just have that product of what they ended up recording and not the process they went through, which is why it was so uh, just remarkable and fun for me to get to work with one of these elite performers to have the dialogue back and forth yeah. to connect the dots between the process and the product. Mm-hmm. Um, without that, I think from studying things like rubato or dynamics where you can measure exactly what performers do and then kind of create graphs that will lay multiple performances on top of each other because we can't orally experience multiple performances simultaneously, but this is a great visual aid to be able to make those comparisons. What you tend to see with experts is that the shape of what they chose to do is similar, which suggests at least that they're noticing similar things in the music, whether it's the high point of a phrase uh, a cadence, a dissonant moment, you know, something in the style or structure. They seem to all understand it to that basic sense and do something with it. The differences are in how they treat it and how much of any expressive nuance they choose mm-hmm. to do. So that's that kind of consistency and creativity. Yeah. So if we can make assumptions that they all figured out something similar <laughs> because they're choosing similar moments in the piece, to mm-hmm. highlight or to emphasize. So is that something that you would kind of share with your class? Or I guess for me, you know, let's say teaching theory one to four, what are the kind of things that, in your opinion, really enhances, you know, that core theory class? What's what's the low-hanging fruit for those of us that, in, that, in my case, do not have the graph, the three-tiered graph accessible on my desktop, you know, amongst other things. I have villains and superheroes, but that's about as far as I go in recent research history. <laughs> so what can you show your class, or what is, I guess, the, some of the best interactions you've had with your, with your students on this? Yeah, occasionally I will bring in one of the graphs, um, if, if I happen to have one for a piece we're studying. As you can imagine, they're incredibly time-consuming and tedious to make, so it's not a thing you can just whip out and create for any class. But we can also just engage them with both scores and recordings as the starting point of our activities. And so we can have really wonderful conversations and brainstorming sessions, just listening to multiple performances of a piece and seeing if they can actually pick up on and hear and then describe and articulate what they hear. And in the early stages, maybe they're not picking up on things Mm -hmm. yet to be able to hear that somebody took time or changed an articulation or made a timbral change, let alone comparing that from one performance to the next. Mm -hmm. So that's a great activity just to listen and discuss and compare and then try to figure out without those performers there to help us, why do I think they made that choice? What's happening in the music that might have cause them to choose to take a little bit of time or get louder, even in really simple ways. And then we can flip it around and do the analysis first and say, I think I've discovered this about this piece. Let's go listen and see what a bunch of people did. Did they discover those same things? Did they maybe discover something else that we didn't notice? Um, So that 
comparing sounds and analytical observations just back and forth all the time is a great way of trying to get them to think about it. Oh yeah, that sounds great. My, my trumpet teacher, who's an emeritus professor of trumpet, used to say that playing the trumpet is an aural skill I have to think, but I don't solfege my lessons or anything, do I? I thought oral skill, I don't do dictations. Right. <laughs> but I think that's what he really meant, is what you were saying a second ago, is that what is the difference in the articulation? What is the nuanced approach to that phrase ending that really made it connect on a deeper level to yeah. to an audience or a you know colleague or something? Yeah, and sometimes the performance is what helps them with the analysis. If we say, well, this performer slowed down right here oh, well, maybe it's because there's an end of a phrase that they hadn't previously been able to notice, but that just constant interplay between the analysis and performance, that the, mm. the people creating the music can be equally informative as the piece of music itself. Mm. That's, there go. There's that's, the title of the episode right that's there. A good, that's a good little soundbite there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because we're not going to talk about what is oral skills because you have other projects cooking uh, on that. But I mean, as you're talking about that, that make, that's what makes me think of, as you mentioned, Ben, like, what are oral skills? It's not just dictation and solfege, right? I mean, what you're talking about is oral skills, but not in the, okay, we're just going to do a melody and just find the pitches, rhythms. Um, you know, articulations, timbre, phrasing, all those things. Training our students to listen for those as well is something I think, at least for myself, I miss out on and I don't, I don't highlight as much as I should. So I love hearing these examples. I do too. I, it makes me think like, should we have expressive markings in melodic dictations and ask the students to write them? You know, mm -hmm. did I play a staccato or a legato there? If you heard it, you should label it. Did I have a, you know, dynamic change? If you heard it, you should label it, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, that's a really, yeah. yeah, I mean, just to get them more in tune with those choices that they might be making on their own, whether they're leading an ensemble or performing a solo, all of those things are decisions they might make, you know, on their own, certainly we hope at some point without a teacher's guidance. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that embraces uh, what I see as a trend in our field of music theory pedagogy right now, that it's not as entirely based on pitch and harmony and form, but that we're trying to create a balance that includes these other important elements of music. And so we want to give our students opportunities to engage with and learn about and articulate their understanding of rhythm and timbre and articulation and texture, mm -hmm. all sorts of things. So the piano playing has stopped. There's now very loud bells in the background. So I'm sorry if you can hear those. We're having a very musical day in my office and it's not me making it, unfortunately. Um, but all that to say, it makes me you know, ask, does it work the other way? So you were trained as a performer. How does that like help you as a theorist? How does that impact you or change your work as a theorist? Yeah. I mean, obviously having a background of performance and a love of performing just informs what I'm interested in and what I choose to focus on. Um, from a more immediate point of view, I suppose, if you bring in piano skills, I think we might all agree that keyboard skills are pretty useful as a theory teacher. Mm -hmm. When I think about it, though, it's not just to perform a piece that I could easily click play on a professional recording that will sound far better than I do. 
sure, I could do that for some pieces. But I instead value my keyboard skills for demonstrating that analysis, performance, perception, uh, connection right in the moment, pausing at a certain moment in the piece to discuss, well, what do you think comes next? And why did it or did it not do that? Or to recompose a passage to experiment with what a different compositional choice might have created and then have that discussion of the impact of one thing or another. And the amazing professional recording doesn't do that. And mm-hmm. so that ability to improvise, recompose, stop and start, brainstorm ideas is uh, can be really compelling to students, encouraging that yeah. active participation. They're seeing in real time analysis and performance happening. So even it's as simple as we're working on suspensions and I play it with and without and then discuss, well, because there's tension in the suspension, I'm going to lean into a little bit, take more time, play it a little louder and then release on the resolution Mm -hmm. um, and then play it with and without. So again, we're just combining always in the moment what we're figuring out and how we might play it. Where do I begin? I have so many reactions to that, but I'm going to limit it to like 30 <laughs> seconds, which is number one, I love recompositions. Those of you that were at my TSMT talk this year, I didn't, the recompositions were an add-on. I did all these analysis of villain themes. And I thought, wow, it would be cool if I did a recomposition and took some of the features away, you know, and I learned a lot about logic and resetting this, rescoring this movie scene. And then after the talk, everyone was saying, Oh, I just love those recompositions. Oh, man, I wish you had time to put in more recompositions. You know, and I thought, man, I should have done the whole talk just about recompositions, you know. And just today in my class, somebody asked me, oh, man, I was talking about if you have a superhero, it could be in a minor key. And they were like, well, how about a villain in a major key, Dr. Graf? So then (laughs) I went over there and I played Darth Vader and it was in a major key. And I was like, well, there you go. That's what it would sound like, you know. The what-if scenarios are so powerful to give you just that glimpse into what could be and what could happen. It's it's really fantastic. And, you know, Paul's humble, but he does a really good job of this. Um, and it's maybe more intuitive to composers than it is for music theorists, but maybe equally as useful, you know, in the class to just really do the recompositions and be able to show that. What if I played the ending like this? And, yeah, that's one thing I love. I love to do more now. I probably do that five or six times as more now than I had ever done five years ago in my teaching. Yeah. It's also fun to talk with him about the the power of familiarity and expectation, because if you take a piece mm-hmm. that's really popular and that they already know, and then you and maybe it has an unusual or distinctive moment in it, the less common thing, but it's common to them because it's what they already know, and you change it to thing that would have been more conventional in the style. And then it sounds mm-hmm. odd to them. So then those yeah. kind of fun conversations as well about uh, manipulations of expectation within a certain compositional style, as well as triggered by our own familiarity and exposure. With yeah. Oh, totally. I did that exact thing with the wedding march. You know, ba 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 da 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 da. And I just played a giant one chord right there. <laughs> and I was like, "What do you think of that?" You know what I mean? And I did, yeah, I did, I did exactly that. It was so much fun. It was so much fun. Because <laughs> they're never going to guess the actual chord that's on. Right, <laughs> that's right, <laughs> right. And like, at what is the moment where the bride falls into the water, you know, or the cake explodes, <laughs> or 
That's it's always right. right there, you know? That's right. It's, it's a good metaphor for marriage, right? Because you're like, oh, it's just going to be a one chord. <laughs> no, it is not. It's going to be a chromatic chord. <laughs> the two half diminished six in the key of three. Little did you know. Little did you know marriage is going to be like that. <laughs> so, sorry, getting back on track. Um, so I'm hearing all these great ideas. I'm loving it. But I need to get my students to have skills. You know, I want to I want to listen to all these things and talk about what ifs and recompose and consider performance um, differences. But I also need to have my students be able to have skills. Right. So how do you balance that? Like, I want to expose them to all these different things and get them excited about what music theory really is but I also need to make sure that they can spell their triads and they can name their key signatures, things like that. So how do we, how do we have both? Yeah, when we think about it, we can't do all of those exciting applications without some fundamental skills to bring to mm-hmm. it. So it's a crucial part of the connection. Um, so to highlight that, I often have my students reflect on the process of learning to read. And so, of course, it's hard for us to remember age five or six when we actually went through this process. I wish I had a distinct memory of it. I don't know. Do any of you? What it was like? Actually, Yeah? Yeah, I have a memory of learning to read. Learning to read? My son is currently six in kindergarten, so. There you go. But we tried to think, okay, well, what were the steps that we had to go through? Okay, we had to just learn what the letters were, what they sounded like, and what they looked like. And then we started putting some letters together in simple words, and we would sound them out. And then eventually we learned how to group those letters together and they were things on their own that just became words that we could put together into sentences. And then sometimes the chunks of letters we knew at words, we would encounter a new one that we didn't know. So our fluency of reading would stall out a bit as we added new words to our vocabulary. And eventually we're just trying to, fluency meaning I can read this without pausing and stopping and with the appropriate inflections and pacing and that sort of thing. So to kind of connect that analogy, sometimes I'll bring in just some random paragraph and have a student volunteer to read it out loud by sounding out every word. And of course, (laughs) the class simultaneously laughs and are annoyed because it sounds ridiculous because they're already fluent readers. And so then we imagine, well, what would it be like if you read a 200 page novel by sounding out every word? And they have amazing insights about all the terrible things that would happen. It would take forever. They would get bored. They couldn't follow the story because you get lost in the individual letters. They, of course, wouldn't know about the characters and have any drama to it. And ultimately, the end result is they're just going to put the book down and never finish reading it. Mm-hmm. And isn't this exactly what happens when our students are at the sounding out phase of fundamentals? If they're still counting lines and spaces, using tricks mm-hmm. to figure out key signatures, analyzing every single note of a chord, sounding it out mm-hmm. rather than seeing mm-hmm. it as a chunk, mm-hmm. then it's not particularly interesting forever. It takes a lot of time. It doesn't allow them to discover anything that's that interesting about the piece. And probably they'll put their so-called analysis book down and never finish it. And certainly not bring it when they're not required to, to their own mm-hmm. pieces and performing and teaching experiences. Now, how do we get to that point? Mic drop. <laughs> it's that's hard. a total mic drop. That's so right? good. It's such a good analogy. <laughs> it's yeah. perfect. But, because, yeah, that's exactly what happens. Yeah, But we're really point, in the sounding out phase for a long time. Mm-hmm. Right? And we have to remind our students, I think, that, you know, if they're 
18 to 20 year old theory one through four students, they've been reading for 12 or 13 years. And maybe they're in week two of even knowing that we have different types of chords that have certain names and properties mm-hmm. and labels. So we can't underestimate the importance and necessity of time spent over many, many years. But I think we also need to teach those component processes. In kindergarten, we weren't given the 200 page book and said, well, tell me all the words. And mm-hmm. so I think we That's have right. to tear apart the process and help them see the individual components that have patterns that create the chunks and how to visually navigate a score where the same components might be there, but they look different in every piece and yeah. navigate that path from sounding out to, to fluency. So I just wrote a pedagogy of theory lesson on remediation. And this is making me think of that lesson because, you know, of course there are benefits to having a remedial course like a fundamentals course, because if a student doesn't read music at all, um, then it gives them the chance to go slow, to maybe, you know, be with other peers who are still having to sound everything out and all of those kinds of things. But then of course the downside is that sometimes students feel labeled or Mm -hmm. even just the logistics of getting behind in your degree or having to pay for a class that doesn't count for anything or all of those things. And when you asked if, if we remembered learning to read, I think the reason I remember learning to read is that my siblings were teenagers when I was Mm. born and everyone in my family, both parents and both siblings are voracious readers. And so I was this little, little kid in this family that was constantly sitting around reading novels, right, in the living room together, and I couldn't read. And so I have these memories of being very, very little, pre, like before school, and just desperately wanting to learn how to read, so much so that I would memorize the stories that my mom or my sister or my brother read to me, or my dad. I would memorize them and then look at the words and try to make the words match this memory. So. Here's how that relates to fundamentals in my head is like, is it better to be someone who doesn't have the skill yet and be in a room of people who are like voraciously doing that thing? Or is it better to have people around you, you who are also still like the, 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 you know, like I, and I don't know. I'm not even sure in this lesson that I gave the, pedagogy of theory students a good answer i just was like here's the problem of remediation respond (laughs) like i don't have the answer either i'm not sure which of those is best that's my random the first thing that comes to my mind is that oftentimes the students who come into a level one class with some background many are still they're at a high exposure level they know some stuff Mm -hmm. but they probably aren't at the fluent level either. So if we're working on those steps of gaining fluency, they're still in that process and they can be helpful to students who have less previous experience. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if the huge majority are already at that automaticity level of even some of the the fundamentals. So if that's our focus, then it might be fun to have them all together. Yeah, that's true. I will say that one of the challenges, and you kind of addressed this, Jen, is that with remediation administratively or institutionally you almost have to say like well here's the line between those that are going to be in fundamentals and those that are going to be in theory one 
But inevitably, there's just so much more nuance to it than that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the person who was a bad test taker, and they had a bad day, and the cat died before they took the test, and they made a 68.2, and they needed a 70, you know. And then you've got the person who studied up the night before, and they kind of quickly learned how to read bass clef, but then when you actually have them in practice in the class demonstrate that fluency you find out you know what it wasn't really there they kind of crammed a little bit on the bass clef or they crammed a little bit on those minor key signatures and they made a 71 so they're in the theory one class you know and oh it's just such a challenge to be able to put everyone into most of the times it's two groups so i don't know i'm kind of glad we have everyone together at, at unt yeah i think you also have the student who's never encountered it before just based on their life opportunities and yet the minute they get the opportunity they're going to pick it up quicker than others and so maybe they're in the remedial class simply because they never heard it before and so that's an interesting factor there's a lot of research that's been done in math on this topic and i've read a bunch of it just out of curiosity and it makes me want to do similar studies in music because we also have common remediation paths. Yeah. So maybe I should. Maybe I should do that. It makes but me want to do the studies too. Let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's do it together. Let's I'm all them. in. Um, you know, in math, it seems to be that it's better for everyone to be together. That seems to be the better result for the students who would have required remediation, generally speaking. They're more likely to be successful over in the long run. Some of them might fail in the short run, but more of them make it across the graduation finish line. So, yeah. Now, what about um, students who take AP theory? Because you and friend of the show, Jenny Beavers, (laughs) have done quite a bit of research on looking at the AP theory curriculum and seeing how it kind of lines up with... um, (laughs) <laughs> with what we are we're doing in the the, the curriculum uh, at the college level, and so what things have you kind of discovered about about that? Yeah, I think uh, as Jenny and I worked on this when we started a few years ago, it was initially inspired by this exact question about mm. how to help students develop fluency as compared to exposure to many things and both are valuable and we need them but where's the balance between the two Uh, kind of the questions of breadth and depth Um, and also you know at UTSA we've decided we don't give credit for the AP exam every student joins level one regardless because we had so many experiences with students who did very well on the AP test but we're still in a sounding out phase of fundamentals but they had heard of augmented sixth chords so they had this broad exposure to things that were never going to be in level one, but they weren't that good, that fluent at so-called earlier stages of learning or all the time hearing the statement like, well, I totally know that. I just need more time. <laughs> it's such an interesting statement from students that, uh, of course, it's a reflection that they attribute their performance to something outside of themselves rather than their own efforts, right? It's time's Uh fault that I couldn't Uh do this. But trying to figure out, well, where is that balance and line between time and knowledge? What does it mean to totally know something? It probably falls into this idea of fluency that we're talking about. I've teased a few students saying, well, if I asked you to tie your shoes, you wouldn't say, I totally know how to do it, but I need more time. You would just do it. Uh (laughs) Now, if you went back to when you first learned, 
then you needed more time because mm-hmm. you're trying to remember what my mom and dad said to loop these and cross these laces over and Which you were sort of uncoordinated. <laughs> but you reached a point where you totally could do it without even thinking. So a lot of that was what Jenny and I were thinking about. And so we um, you know, looked at the AP curriculum. She's an AP grader, so she had that insider information as well. And kind of anecdotally, we had heard that the reason the AP curriculum is so broad, it includes things across all four semesters. Mm -hmm. of a typical music theory and oral skills curriculum. And the reason it's so broad is because universities do it so differently that we want to make sure that any AP student can transition to any college program and make it work. So we asked ourselves, well, are we really that different across universities? Mm -hmm. So we surveyed university music theory and oral skills faculty about kind of the organization of their curriculum by topics. We also surveyed the high school AP teachers about time spent on different topics and kind of overall thoughts and experiences with teaching it. And as you can imagine, we're not that different across universities. There really is a pretty narrow range of things that end up in a level one music theory and oral skills class. And so an AP curriculum could potentially be designed that covers level one things. And then they take the exam and they test out of level one and they move on to level two and they would have had a deeper experience with those fundamentals. And interestingly, that's how AP works in most other disciplines. Mm-hmm. It's a matchup mm-hmm. of class to class, and you kind of mimic the content of that class in the AP, you get credit for that class, and you move on. So it really caused us to think a lot about this idea of fluency. Mm-hmm. And I think our teaching, both of us, changed by more focus on fundamentals, that you can, more easily have students grasp and manage the advanced topics if their fundamentals are fluent Mm -hmm. because they're all naturally cumulative it's just built in if you're good at spelling a major minor seven chord in general you're good at secondary dominance it's not hard Mm -hmm. to add that component you know that's just one example yeah absolutely right yeah well i know ben you've got a hard stop at 130 so we want to we want to honor we want to honor that, uh, but this has been such a treat to chat with you. We do like to end with a little rapid fire session, where we just throw some questions at you, and then you can give your hot takes. Um, and so, Ben, uh, if you want to go first, and then whenever you need to uh, to bounce, you can you can do so. Sure. Either way, um, let's see. What should I go with today? Um, your favorite artist to teach. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Favorite questions are so hard. Or a composer. That's why I said artist. Uh, might, I mean, it's an impossible question, right? Favorites. But maybe we go with Bach for today, right? Both. <laughs> he shows up in my research a lot. He, uh, there's some pretty remarkable pieces and things to talk about. So maybe I go with a classic answer today. Yeah. Can't go wrong with Bach. Lots of different interpretations Absolutely. as well. You can listen to different recordings and go yeah. a lot of different ways with that. Right. You've got early music yeah. approaches, more modern approaches, counterpoint, beautiful melodies. It's all there. It's all there. It's yeah. true. Yep. All right. Um, do Jen, you do you pop? have... Oh, I can go. I can go. Um, your favorite theory lesson to teach or the topic that you're like, man, I can't wait to get to that topic in theory, whatever. Theory, whatever. 
Gosh, all these hard favorite questions. <laughs> <laughs> the rapid fire, you know. Rapid right. fire. Fully prepared right. for the rapid fire. And then I'm slow for the answer to the rapid fire question. <laughs> we <laughs> always edit these out, so. You're... <laughs> right. Let's see what comes to mind first. Um, I don't know if it's my absolute favorite, but it just came to mind based on the reaction it usually gets from students, which is super fun. So let's take a first day of introducing uh, non-chord tones. And so maybe you compose something for them, and then I've composed it to add a bunch of uh, non-chord tones to that same progression. And so they hear it sort of just liven up the texture, and all of a sudden to them it sounds like real music. And it tends to have them <laughs> with this like audible, impressed, oh, we finally arrived at the moment when... <laughs> And so I don't know if it's my necessarily my favorite to teach, but I do love those moments where mm -hmm. um, the students, you can see them connecting and saying, oh, if I learn to do this, I can make real music, too. And so that's yeah. one example of a, a moment like that. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, we had a moment like that in theory, too, yesterday because I taught mode mixture. And that's one where mm. students often have heard those sounds and they don't know how to label them. And I have a particularly like very excited all the time theory two, which is a great thing to have. Mm -hmm. And they were just really thrilled about mode mixture. <laughs> they were like, I have heard those. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you have. <clears throat> they were kind of similar about secondary dominance. So they're just fun is what I'm saying. They're just fun. So maybe that's okay. my moment. It's not uh, a topic. It's the, the reaction and the interaction and the response from the students that, mm -hmm. that makes teaching anything the favorite. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah that's true. That's true. Um, so I was going to ask of the sort of pieces that you've done this type of analysis with, which one is your favorite or which was the most kind of revealing where you listen to these different performances? Maybe there were different interpretations or maybe they were all the same and that made it really exciting. But what was the piece that you worked with where you were like, oh, there's something really here? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, probably the Presto from box G minor unaccompanied violin sonata. So mm. it's a perpetual motion piece. It's just 16th mm -hmm. notes the whole time. And so uh, listeners and students, we all could assume, well, there's not much going on. It's just 16th notes <laughs> the whole time, mm -hmm. especially rhythmically. But because of his manipulations of texture and counterpoint, even in a completely monophonic piece, there's, there's kind of a funky groove to it with mm. syncopations and accents and sequences that are interrupted in the middle and things like that. So there's just so much interest in a purely monophonic, perpetual motion isochronous piece mm -hmm. that then performers, you can see them having all sorts of different interpretations, ways to uh, highlight or emphasize different components of that, so. Yeah. Is it more interesting when the performers do really different things or when they do mostly the same thing? Uh, it's interesting to find the moments of shared interpretation, but mm -hmm. then when you study the piece a lot, when you come upon a performance that does something that nobody else has done, mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. it usually triggers that response of, that's amazing, or what are they doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the response we all have when we decide on our favorite performances of pieces. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's because it goes the way we thought it should go, and sometimes mm -hmm. it's because it is idiosyncratic or creative or something like that so yeah yeah that's great so as we wrap up maybe let our listeners know a little bit about how 
Um, they can find you if you want to be found on the internet and, and maybe what, uh, what kind of projects you have cooking right now. Yeah. I'm not super active on social media, so I'm not sure if that's going to be the easiest find. Of course, email address through UTSA. Happy to hear from and interact with anyone. Uh, in terms of upcoming projects, uh, one exciting one, since we mentioned Jenny Beavers, she and I have worked on creating a graduate certificate in music theory pedagogy that will likely mm. start at UTSA That's next great. year. And our real intention with that is to attract an audience of public school music teachers, ensemble directors, mm. who end up teaching a theory class, AP or not. And sometimes they choose that, and sometimes it gets assigned to them and they're not feeling <laughs> that prepared. And to really help share all this great work in our field of music theory pedagogy with those at the secondary level. Uh, sometimes programs like this at schools are focused on folks like us who want to go into university level careers in teaching theory. So we think that's a pretty interesting and exciting population there. So encourage anyone, Definitely. reach out if you're interested or have students interested. Um, in terms of research, I'm hoping to design a study that really looks at this idea of process of learning to read process of music fundamental fluency and can we borrow some experimental methods on uh, chunking or even an idea like anagrams right that's really what you're mm -hmm. doing when you're trying mm -hmm. to figure out how to stack notes mm -hmm. in, in chords and try to tease apart how we can help people develop these skills mm -hmm. rather than just expecting them to <laughs> do it as a final project um, in terms of expressive performance, I've been working on a, a Britain cello fugue, so kind of in the spirit of Bach's unaccompanied pieces, but somehow mm -hmm. Britain managed to compose a monophonic fugue that has every contrapuntal element in it, even though you're hearing one note at a time. So that's pretty compositionally remarkable and interesting for performers to navigate. So that's kind of yeah. a, a fun, fun next project, extending out some of the things I've done so far. You just made it to the end of another episode of Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review the podcast, and you can always reach us at notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or show ideas. Thanks for listening.